Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Natalie Robbins, the author of The Untold Journey, The Life of Diana Trilling. Natalie, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for inviting me. So I'm wondering if you could start by talking about how you got interested in Diana Trilling and, and how you got interested in writing this book. Well, about maybe 15, 20 years ago, I wrote a book about the FBI and its files on American writers. And Lionel Trilling had a, a FBI file. Um, and I, as a writer, the researcher, I was allowed to get the files through the Freedom of Information Act of any writer that was no longer alive so I could get his file so I as part of the way I did the book I had something called witnesses so I wrote Diana Trelling and said could I interview you about your husband's FBI file and that's how we met and she was quite put off when we first met for several reasons the most important reason being that she was very upset that she didn't have an FBI file and I explained to her that she was very much alive and probably did have one, but she herself would have to order it from the Freedom of Information Act office, and I would show her how to do it, but of course that, that never happened. But anyway, a, um, a friendship developed as a result of that. And so what is it about her that made you want to sort of tell her story and and you tell it sort of in conjunction with her husband, but really tell her part of that story and her side of her life and story? Well, she was born in 1905 and she grew up in a quite traditional Jewish family and she was bullied by her older brother and sister and never really given a chance to be her own person, and um, was always on the sidelines. And let's flash forward to when she met Lionel Trilling, which was, which was when they were both in their early 20s. Um, and she focused mostly on his career, because that's what women did at that time, and probably some of them still do, but I hope not. Um, and so she really began by being listening to what he was thinking and writing and didn't really do any writing of her own to speak of, although my research showed she tried to write a children's story, which wasn't very good. She wrote a couple of short stories, which weren't very good. And then one afternoon, she overheard her husband uh, on the phone with the editor of The Nation magazine, and she could tell from the conversation that they were asking for a book review editor. So when her husband got off the phone, she said, hey, what about me? Why don't you suggest me? And so he did, because he was a great believer in her. And that's really how she got started. She became a book reviewer 
for a um, for the nation. She started out just doing unsigned reviews, but very quickly did signed reviews, and she that that career lasted for a very long time. I think it was ten years. And then she, various the parties in review and various other places asked her to do reviews. So she did. She didn't really write any books of her own. She, although she collected some of her essays, because, and as my book shows, she had one other major, very major job besides her own work, and that was helping Lionel Trilling with his writing. Um, as I say at the very end of my book, and I guess I'm telling you now at the beginning of this interview, but I, I got criticized for leaving it at, at the end, but I left it, which I'm about to tell you, at the end because I felt that um, I didn't want to be a biographer that used information that Diana Trilling didn't know about at the time. And it was a better story to leave it as is. And I know that sounds mysterious and weird. And what it, I'm trying to say is that um, their son, now that's another story because they, they, were, they were parents in their mid-40s. They decided they wanted to have a child. Um, their son diagnosed his father with ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity, and that's what Lionel Trilling seemed to have. He could not settle down and write. So Diana would actually, she wouldn't change his ideas or, or really offer ideas, but she put his work in the order that is now seen as, you know, when you, when you read it. And one of the, and but he never saved any of any of the drafts with her work on it. He thought that he was deeply ashamed that he required that much work. Um, and then her son, who was quite a wonderful young man, and he, he cooperated with me fully in this biography, said that it was one of the great disappointments of Diana's life that she didn't get credit for. Not, not that she didn't get credit. She didn't really need that as much as she didn't want him to throw out those pages. Anyway, she, she had a very special way of looking at the world. She always, she people said that, you know, she was a conservative in her philosophy of you know, politics, but she really wasn't. She was a, a, a liberal who just went her own way. She, um, and she wrote politics, political figures, um, public intellectuals, and she didn't care where it was published. She was not a snob. She thought being published in Vogue magazine was just as good as being published in the Partisan Review. Um, and her husband, Lionel, who was a, a revered professor at Columbia, she herself had didn't teach or do anything except for one time many years early in his career when she had to fill in for him when he was sick and that turned out to be a disaster but the the, the Columbia faculty didn't like her because they thought she was pushy and she was and because she never felt she got her due and so she was always outspoken and and and, and 
quite misunderstood because her pushing us was a cry for help, really. You know, watch me, look at me, talk to me. And, and you know, as she she later, you know, her her essays became more complicated, more interesting, and she got, you know, asked all over the place, and she, she won a, two Guggenheims. So she really did get a, a lot of praise and a lot of rewards in that way, but she didn't finally... Been writing her own books till after Lionel died. I think I can't remember. I think it was 1975. He died of pancreatic cancer, and um, then she wrote the famous book that became a bestseller about um, Mrs. Harris, about the uh, the woman. Oh, now I'm now I'm blocking on her name. Um, forgive me. I have to I have to think of her name for a minute, but um, um, anyway, as soon as I as soon as my mind comes back to me, Mrs. Harris was the name of the book, and it was about it was um, Jane Harris. She was the headmistress of a fancy Southern private school, and she had a lover who was a famous diet doctor, Herman Tarnauer, and uh, Jane Harris came to New York to see him and discovered he, the doctor, had a mistress and shot him. And it was a very famous case. And Diana herself admitted to various people that, you know, why was she so interested in this story? Why, why did it stir, stir her so much? And um, more than one of her readers would say, this was her unconscious fantasy of murdering Lionel. Um, and there's some truth to that little remark. Um, because in addition to Lionel not giving her what she thought she deserved for the work she, the help she did for him, he suffered from rages. And ever she said it would go on you know, maybe once a week, and he would tell her that she was ruining his life. Um, they never should have been married. And this went on, I think, is this went on almost to the very end of, of uh, their lives together. Um, and it, there were other ways he showed his ADD symptoms. He drove erratically. He would drive, you know, on the wrong side of the road. He would drive into the practically on the sidewalk he would he was a swimmer and he would swim into close get very close to boats she would tear her hair out in terror worried about that and all kinds of signs that 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 you know that that he he had this difficulty which um has nothing to do with his enormous talent and Intelligence is just for something he had to deal with. Um, it's uh, most people with that disorder, you know, it does run in families. Um, his his father probably had it too. That is, Lionel Trilling's father had it. Um, it. Has nothing to do with intelligence. It's just the way the, the brain is put together. Um, and the other thing that attracted me to Diana Trilling was the fact that she really was something I coined the phrase 
a family feminist. She really put her family, that is her son, and I guess Lionel and the way and their household together on equal footing with her work. I mean, she didn't go off and say, I have to take this weekend and leave you and go finish my book. She finished her book, you know, when she could, when the family tasks or whatever you want to call them were finished. And when her son was, you know, very small, she would, um, you know, have him in a playpen in her room, living room. And, you know, when he was taking a nap or whatever, she would do, do work and, um, I identified a lot with that because um, this the, this book is my tenth book, and I have grew up with I been married over fifty years, and we have we have two grown children now. And when they were you know youngsters, I I did the very same thing. I would you know during nap time go into my office and write. Of course, with my youngest son, we had a full time live in nanny so that, I guess that made a big difference but anyway D Diana did have lots of babysitters too and because she was so temperamental and difficult they they really didn't last all that long and um, and a lot of that had to do with her upbringing and the time that you know she tried to become who she I think finally did become a, a, a thoughtful and important writer. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you a little bit about was her views on feminism and, and how she talked about that. You talk about it throughout the book. And I, I appreciated that term family feminist. I thought that was really interesting, but she was really grew up and then came of age and was around during um, <laughs> second wave feminism. And so, and, and so I'm wondering if you can, if you have anything more about the, what you were seeing with her or how she sort of talked about the feminist movement and her position within or not within that movement. Well, to tell you the truth, the second wave of feminism, I don't really, at least I didn't really see it affect her because by that time, I'm trying to think, she was in her 70s and she really mostly focused on her work and, you know, what wasn't involved in thinking about the, the younger women around her, not, not out of selfishness, really. And that, I really mean that because I could tell, uh, she, she was not a selfish person. She was a very giving person when she liked the person. I should guess <laughs> I should add that. And, um, so she practiced a feminism. Her son, although her son always used to say, you know, my, my, my mother believed in feminism, but wasn't a feminist. I'm, I'm not 100% sure what he meant by that. I think maybe he meant she, you know, didn't march or didn't, um, I guess that's it. He, he meant she didn't march or something, but she certainly, in, in the way she lived her life, especially after Lionel died she, she did. I mean she kept to a very strict working schedule and this was really dramatic because toward the end of her life she had immaculate degeneration and she was practically blind but she managed to hire secretaries that she would um, you know talk to and uh, they would record what she, she was writing it was 
it was really remarkable. So she was she was a feminist without um, parading it. Really. That's how I, I say it. Mm-hmm. So another thing I found really interesting in, in the book and throughout her life was she was really um, having some, she used like her use of psychoanalysis. Maybe that's where we would start. And so can, right. can you talk a bit about, I mean, that was really important to her, to Lionel, and it seemed right. to even start because of her childhood. But can you talk a bit about the role of psychoanalysis in her life? And Psychoanalysis was probably the most important thing in her life, not in his because he saw it more as an uh, as a philosophy to be maybe used in his work, although he was in psychoanalysis most of his life. But everybody used to say she was the one that was um, more interested in psychoanalysis. That's because she had a lot of phobias. I mean, she was afraid to the very end of her life. She was afraid of heights, and when she was a young woman, she, I mean, the fears are too much to go into. Spiders, rocks, thunderstorms, being alone. I mean, there's a whole list in her own uh, memoir that she wrote that fills up half a page of, and they were very early, they meaning Lionel and Diana Trilling, proponents of analysis, and between them had several different and now analysts, and some of them didn't go too well. Diana is one of her first analysts, um, encouraged her to go out on dates with other men. Um, It was quite bizarre. Another analyst um, took her and Lionel on vacation with him and his family. and it wasn't until I think maybe it was third or fourth analyst that she finally found one who who she stayed with for quite a while and then as did Lionel. So I would say that analysis was the bedrock of their life, uh, but real truly. And, um, and they went through it despite all the, um, the weird things that had happened to her, which she was perfectly willing to discuss, and to, but she never was the kind of person that said, "Okay, this happened to me, and how could this have happened to me? I'm going to not believe in this anymore." She, you know, went to her grave believing in analysis. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure about him, how how he felt at it, felt about it to the end, but I'm guessing that he because I'm not as familiar with his work as I am with hers, but I'm guessing that to the very end, its principles were alive in many of the things he thought and wrote about. Yes, it seemed like she was so invested in it that even when they were struggling financially, she made sure that she was able to sort of pay her analyst. And... Ab- yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There was always money for that. They were, And speaking of money, they were always broke and borrowing money from wonderful neighbors and friends. They, they had a, a group of Columbia professors that were d- deeply devoted. They were deeply devoted to each, each other. And, um, and it's true, she, they always had the money for the psychoanalysts. And they, even their poor son, 
who turned out to not be a poor son. He's a wonderful young man who, who has written a wonderful book about the history of ornaments in the world and successful marriage to grown children. But he had a childhood, which he fully talks about, where he you know, went to several different schools. One time they were even maybe four or five, I can't remember. And one time his parents even took him out of school for you, thinking that would be better because he had rages all the time, which was undiagnosed ADHD. Connected to that, rather, I should say. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about um, their the beginning of their relationship when they met? You talk a bit about that here and sort of how that sort of relationship formed. When they first met, yep. Well, they met. They met. They were. It was a blind date, and they met uh, in a speakeasy. And as she herself says, in the, from the beginning of their courtship she, to the time they got married, they were well, not so much drunk as always drinking, and drinking was really allowed in her family, which was really a surprise in many ways. Nice Jewish family that didn't mind her going through their liquor cabinet, which she did regularly with her friends. And um, when they were first, so they met in this big easy, she knew immediately he was the man for her, and, and he seems to have realized she was the woman for him and they got married um and went on a honeymoon in connecticut to a cottage owned by i think it was a friend of theirs and little troubles began there because she was terrified of that there was a snake in in the cabin where they were staying actually he lionel wrote one short story about that I don't, and I'm, I'm, I might be making this up because I don't have, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't actually published anywhere until much later after his his death. I, I seem to remember. I'd have to go back into my book and research it and see if I'm right. But anyway, um, and and many of her phobias began began to be, emerge from that, and they were quite poor. He 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 he. Uh, was teaching uh, rich little boys and girls um, how to write and classes like that. They got some money from her father, and so they um, they lived in the village, and then they, they moved up to the Columbia neighborhood. And then eventually he got a teaching job at Columbia, and their um, finances improved. And... Interestingly, also, this, even though, you know, his salary at that time, and it was just one salary, his, didn't stretch all that far when you consider all the medical bills they had, um, going away for the summer was very important. So they always managed to find the money to rent a summer, a summer house. Um and they, you know, the, the, the marriage went on, and he wrote, and she helped, and it was when she was 42, and he was 42, that they had their first child, and she was a um, very nervous mother, of course, partly because she was an older mother, but partly just because that was in her nature, 
and she was made fun of on the Columbia campus for the kind of mother she was. But she did her best, and as it turns out, her best was pretty good. Um, and Lionel, um, well, we'll get into that now. In I've forgotten how old he was, but they had a group of friends that um, they saw quite often, and he did have a mistress, and she didn't really object to it too much um, because she thought she she thought possibly him having a mistress would encourage him to do the kind of writing she felt he really wanted to do, which was creative fiction with fiction. Um, and I was fortunate, I guess, that the uh, mistress, she's not died during the writing of my book. She was, uh, talked to me and it was a quite dramatic series of exchanges we had. And it just fascinated me that, um, when Lionel died, their son sent uh, a book to this mistress because he thought, you know, she would like it. And as he told me, she was such a terrific person. Yes, I found in reading in their relationship with their friends and that, I mean, and there was like, not that she, not that Diana also had um, an effect an affair, but it seemed like she also looked beyond Lionel for some kind of sort of comfort or companionship um, that she was. Yeah, absolutely. It, there, there were hints that she might've had an affair and there was, there were two, there were two people that are you know, they're, they're named in the book that um, were possible um, people one had died while I was writing the book. One was still alive and never answered any of my letters. And so it's hard to know whether she actually had a real affair or just had the kind of intimacy that she missed in Lionel. And I don't mean I, I don't mean sexual intimacy as, as much as as somebody that she trusted to listen to her, every thought she had because Lionel wasn't, I don't think, as patient as she wished he would be, although she said, and I think I quote it in the book, that there was nothing they couldn't talk about together. Right. So another um, thing that I found really important for her and her career as both a writer and just as a public figure was her role in politics and how she talked about politics and so her changing political views. And so can you talk about her sort of political views a bit, um, her role in moving from um, support very early on being a supportive of like, communism, but then quickly changing that? And... Right. Yeah. Yeah. She and her friends, it was the thing to do very early on to go to communist meetings and they would go and raise their hand and, protests and everything else and I mean I think that lasted a very very short time and then um, and she, although she, she did some work for some of the front committees um, she was never actually a member of the party but she did what mo most of the young people around her time did was she flirted with the party and did causes that today we would just refer to as you know wonderful progressive causes 
but at that time it was connected with the Communist Party, and then, and then gradually she became um, a, a, a anti-communist and became a, a, a she was a liberal anti-communist, um, which meant that she, she she believed in everything progressive liberals believe in, but she saw no room for any kind of communist party at all. And she, she wasn't really active in, in, in politics or, uh, in terms of marching. She didn't really believe in that. Um, although, you know, she was against the war in Vietnam. She hated uh, whoever, I think it was Susan Sontag, what went to Viet- North Vietnam. She hated that. She was outspoken about that. And she wrote a couple pieces about that. Um, um, so she and she remained anti-communist, and um, and she said so did Lionel. Although many of the people uh, believe many of their not many some of their friends believe that you know he was really deep down a, a conservative, but she says that's ab- absolutely not true. That um, he remained, you know, what he was the liberal uh, anti-communist was not um, was not a, a, a conservative although um, I can't think of his name right now the, the former editor of the com- commentary magazine can you tell me um, I don't know if I can no, I, I can't bring it up for some reason. But anyway, he told he told me that um, Lionel once told him that he was a com uh, he was a conservative, but he wasn't. And she had great respect, by the way, for William F. Buckley Jr. They were kind of buddies, but th- that didn't mean anything other than the fact that she she respected and admired his brain and didn't go along with his politics. I know many people like that that admired his brain and were even, I would use the word amused by it, but did not, you know, follow his beliefs. Right. And you mentioned um, the dinner at the White House, which I have, I did a recent interview about that dinner, the Kennedy dinner at the White House. And I know that she and Lionel and the Kennedys continued sort of a relationship after that dinner. So there was also that relate that sort of relationship. And yeah, I'm not sure they actually continued a relationship. Um, They had a a warm meeting at that afterwards because Lionel had told Lionel Trilling had told Jackie Kennedy had, uh, I guess had told president Kennedy that he had a story to tell him about Jackie. And so they were invited back after the dinner to go up to the private quarters. And, um, and I think there wasn't much to the story other than the fact that uh, Jackie was shy or something like that. I can't, if you, if you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that was, that was the story, but I I don't think there was much, there were, there was much, um, beyond there was no communication beyond that she was very very proud of, of that um 
of that evening and being part of it and the preparations for it were long and detailed and elaborate and it was truly and one of her the highlights and the piece she wrote about that was published in the New Yorker after her death. Yes, I love I love this part where she bought two dresses because she realized that one was just not appropriate for the White House, right. and so right. right, one was short, and she <laughs> and, and she learned that people were going to wear long dresses. But that's right. So another thing that I found, another sort of part of her life that I found interesting was when they moved to England, when when they lived in Oxford. Oh, right. Yes. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. It seemed like she felt much more at home in Oxford than she did in New York. Well, first of all, that's absolutely true. She loved being there. Not at first because she found it cold and they didn't have the food she wanted and she had various wonderful neighbors of hers in New York send her some favorite foods from um, New York. But then eventually, as she got into the, the life of Oxford, she felt women writers were more respected. Uh, and she she did you know, good work there. She reviewed a, you know, a bunch of books for various publications. Um, I'm not sure she wrote any essays. I can't recall right now. I think it was mostly book reviews. But she just felt very at home there. And at one point, you know, wish they could move there permanently. Um, she, she felt that uh, the the public intellectual life in Oxford was um, more peaceful than it was in New York. And I think they got her too. The, you know, the people that she met at they understood her because she she. She wasn't that hard to understand. You just had to listen to her and 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 answer her in a in a way that you know meant something to her, and not just say yes, yes, or or you know she she couldn't bear to be given this short shrift about anything. And in England, they took her seriously. Yeah, it was interesting too, with all sort of her sort of fears and phobias that she very much liked to entertain. She loved to entertain. It was the way she relaxed. She was a fabulous cook. Um, and even when they had, you know, very, she and Lionel had very little money in the beginning, they would always find a way to entertain and make all kinds of dishes. And, and she was an excellent cook and took great pride in her cooking and in fact um, I don't think it's in the book but it was something she once told me that she said that um, American meals are ruined because the people are being told not to use real butter and she was a great believer in using you know, butter and cream <laughs> heavy cream and just... yeah so, so it is unusual that um, she, she, she didn't feel oh, this is the, the woman's job to do this. She just felt this is part of my personality. And and, and, and she said that in, in England also, I think uh, Lionel helped her more when they did entertaining than he did in New York. So there must have been something about the air that, <laughs> that, that made him feel comfortable about participating. And it seemed, too, that 
Um, so she's very gregarious, this entertainer, um, and, and but she also has she she I found it interesting. I'm trying to think of how to talk about this, but those her ex friends or these relationships that she would have, and then something would happen and they would be done. And usually she made usually that was because of something that was written or in the press or in the writing. Well, yeah, the, the, I think the most famous one was with Lillian Hellman, and they both had the same publisher at one point, and Diana wrote something about Lillian Hellman's, and uh, I'm trying to think, uh, the, the four words that, that Lillian Hellman objected to having to do with her political beliefs, and... And Lillian Hellman asked the publisher that to have Diana Trilling remove these four words, and Diana would do it. So she moved the publisher. She moved to another publisher, but it um, it basically was less a political rift, which in certain ways it was, because um, and more a fact that. A long time ago, Diana Trilling had sort of written an insulting letter to, to Lillian Hellman. Um, and at one point, they were quite close friends. She considers her, her she, Diana, considered Lillian Hellman the great female friend she'd been searching for all her life. Um, she was always doing that and um, looking for the great female friend. She thought Lillian Hellman was it, but it turned out not. Not, not to be. So that was a rift, and that was in you know, gossip columns. And Lillian Hellman would tell people, you know, if you talk to Diana Trilling, don't talk to me. And I mean, it, it was kind of a, a famous rift, famous but not that important. Right. Well, to the people involved, to them, I mean, they. The, the people that believed it was a really a political fight, I guess it was important, but but it was less about politics and, and more about some kind of rivalry. <laughs> um, I also thought she has, like, she's a very prolific writer. It didn't, like, she, in addition to the work that's been published, it seems like she has a, a great deal of unpublished work, whether it's, um, novels that she was working on or memoirs. And so can you talk a bit about all the writing she, you know, she's done right. herself? Right. She she worked on, toward the end, I'm trying to think it was whether, it was after Lionel died that she began a novel. And she, her, it was an, a novel basically based, she had a great crush on her, Publisher at Harcourt, Brace, and World. And so it was a novel sort of based on her crush with that publisher. And it was a series, written as a series of letters. It really, frankly, was not very good. It had black drama. It, it I, I don't know, but I guess it, and she, at one point then she, she, she gave it up because she saw it wasn't working. And I think by when she saw it not wasn't working, her beloved publisher, who she thought would publish it, and who was basically a character, and who thought it wasn't working, um, and she, well, you know, very, you know, right before 
her marriage to, you know, right at, directly uh, the very first year of her marriage with Lionel, she and a friend from Radcliffe, where she went, she was one of the few Jewish women permitted at Radcliffe at that time, um, wrote a play that um, was so bad that it made Lionel throw his pipe out the window and break it. And in, in fact, it's uh, really funny, and I don't know whether this, but I knew very early before I began this book, it's going to sound strange, but it's true, that I was going to begin the book with that pipe episode because it was going to kind of be a, a metaphor for everything. And in fact, and in fact, this is a true story. My husband gave me his favorite pipe, and we live in a two-story house in Riverdale section of the Bronx. And I threw it out the window onto our terrace so I could hear the sound it would make. And that's the and the sound it made are the first three words of the book. Oh, that's awesome. Pop, so, pop, pop. <laughs> no, and I that that uh, story was really interesting. I was like, I would love to read the play. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I if a copy exists. I cannot. I, I as we're speaking now, I can't remember. I think it does, but I, I'd have to go back in my files and, and, and check if it does. Um, she was very. She seemed to be very influential in multiple sort of circles and multiple literary circles, and and um, had sort of a pull with with different folks from sort of, and, and I think you mentioned this earlier, she was fine with her writing being in, you know, Vogue as well right, as, in, right, right. And, and so she seemed to have this pull or this relationship with a large circle of writers and artists. And do you think that was just the time or do you think that was something she really worked at and cultivated? Well, I think it was less the time and more the, it reflected her personality because she went to people, she was attracted to people that were bright and interesting and um, allowed her to grow, so to speak. And and that's reflected deeply in the kind of readers she chose toward the end of her life when she was basically blind and she had a series of friends slash readers would come to her apartment on Claremont Avenue and read to her. And they were all, you know, basically poets, writers, nonfiction writers that would read to her. And she knew that she would get read to, but also have an interesting conversation. And um, so she, so she was attracted. She wasn't a snob, let's put it that way. Although that was her, reputation among the Columbia faculty that she was a snob but they just I guess for some reason didn't bother to get to know her carefully they were they were more interested in Lionel Trilling and that has to do of course with the time because the men were more important and um, the fact that um, she you know wanted to do her own work and in her own way and wasn't as quite as public as he was. So, yes, it's, it's true. She had a wide variety of all kinds of friends. And, and, and many of her secretaries, because she also had a lot of 
She always had money for secretaries, no matter what their situation was. And she, her publisher, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, not World, that was his old name. Uh, I guess that was in her one of her contracts that they paid for her, her, her secretaries. But she, you know, befriended them, and they became genuine friends. But as much oh, oh no, go right ahead. I was going to say, as much as she loved certain people, she could turn on a dime on them too, if if they crossed her. <laughs> yes, it seemed very much so that she knew what she liked and knew what she wanted, and right, right. that, and she was not going to change her mind for anyone. That's true. That's and I true. and I found her interest also in television, and you talked about towards the end of her life like listening to the O.J. Simpson trial and sort of that um, interest in sort of popular culture and popular media was also really interesting as well. Oh, my God. Oh, she loved popular culture. And and um, and, and the O.J. Simpson trial, she was just thrilled by. And I had written a book earlier called The Girl Who Died Twice about the Libby Zion case. It was a... Uh, I won't go into that, but it's, it, it was a, mal, a, fa- a pretty famous malpractice case that changed the way the hours of residents and interns and hospitals uh, were, they were shortened. Anyway, in any case, and as a result of my covering that, I met Beth Karras, who was a reporter for uh, Court TV in the days when when trials were televised, and I introduced her to Diane, and they became fast friends. And I mean, she was so proud of her friendship with a court uh, court TV reporter, and the, they remained friends until her death. Yes, I love the fact that you know, in addition to you know all these other things, she loved like Starsky and Hutch and Hawaii Five O. <laughs> yep, loved, loved, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. No, she was not, you know, she she was not a snob, as I said, except for food. <laughs> I mean, she, she really, you know, if, if you would go, one would go to a restaurant with her, she was quite critical of the way the food was prepared and the way it was served. It had to be a special way. And so, so you know, we've been talking a while, and we've been talking a while about her. So I'm wondering, like, and I don't know if you have an, a real answer for this or not, but, like, how do you think she will be remembered? Like, will she be remembered as her, you know, always in connection with Lionel? Or do you think that hopefully she will have her sort of own narrative and own sort of story? Oh, that's such a hard one. I'll I know. You, why. <laughs> you know, it's hard because, um, I mean, this sounds kind of self-centered, but in the way the book was reviewed, it would seem that she wasn't going to be taken seriously because certain places I thought would have reviewed it didn't. And my only feeling is that they didn't think she was a worthy um, subject. So I don't know the answer to that. Um, I hope my book does a little bit in showing that, you know, she is an important writer, an important woman of the 20th century. Um, But, you know, deep, deep down, 
somehow I think she's always going to be Mrs. Lionel Trilling. Right. Even though she has a, you know, very prolific um, right. body of work herself. Exactly. Right. In her own right. Exactly. And, and I can't believe that, you know, I know that it's, it seemed like at the beginning of her life, um, she wanted to be an opera singer and she was very talented and then right. um, had an injury and could not do that. But right. I, you know, it seems like there was, she would always probably come to writing, right? It seemed like she found, um, a relationship with writing that yes was important just, to her. yes it's true and she and, and I think I, I think that the, the the most wonderful thing height heartening thing one can say is uh, I, at her death I think she had written exactly what she wanted to write she would have liked more time to write more but up at that point she felt she had covered the subjects that were important to her. And I don't think there are that many writers that can actually say that. Right. So that, that that's really an important you know, part of her. I wish I had said that in the book, actually. <laughs> no, but I'm but, saying it to you. <laughs> there you go. I mean, and that's a really important thing. Um, before we sort of end, is there anything else about her or about your book that you, that I sort of, you know, maybe missed that you wanted to uh, talk about or highlight. Um, no, I'm trying to think. Um, no, there's 300 plus pages of wonderful stories and wonderful attitudes that she expressed and reviews she wrote. And her, I guess we spent a lot of time on the the people she liked and the people she didn't. But but uh, she was. She was an extraordinary, unusual woman that deserves her due, and I, I hope my book will help 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 present her the way she would have liked to have been presented. And by the way, even though there's things in there that you know, not ridicule her, but are you know negative, she would not have minded at all. I know that because she would she would have wanted her whole story told, no. and I think I told it. Uh, yeah, no, and I I really actually loved it, and I loved hearing Thank the you. stories. Um, my, one of my favorites was her writing about Ginsburg. I really loved the beats in Ginsburg, and so right. the narrative of Ginsburg and how she was like, well, you, I was saying you, you know, everybody was saying they were calling him dirty and that, you know, and she's like, right. no, I was saying they were clean. Right. They didn't look dirty. So so that was like, you know, you could really see this personality and that she sort of she really cared about many of these people who she right. had these she relationships did. with. She did. She did. And she was she 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 sort of mothered um Allen Ginsberg and uh ad admired him as much as she you know might have criticized him as you said, but she deep down admired him. As did Lionel. Yes. And um, so is there anything else you're working on right now that you want to sort of put in a plug for or? Well, not really. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I'm sort of writing, I'm back to writing poetry. So, uh, and I've got a, a new collection I'm working on. 
<laughs> now, whether Di I can say, Diana, you made me do that, I don't know what the reason is, but that's where I am. Well, it was lovely talking to you again. Well, thank you <laughs> this for is, having me on. Yes, this is Natalie Robbins, um, whose book, The Untold Journey, The Life of Diana Trilling, um, is available. So again, thank you for talking with me. Thanks a lot again. <laughs>